Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. It is probably the strangest prayer I have ever heard or ever read. Dear God, please help me to hate white people, or at least to want to hate them. At least I want to stop caring about them individually and collectively. I want to stop caring about their misguided racist souls, to stop believing that they can be better and they can stop being racist. Free me from this burden of calling them to confession and repentance. Grant me a get-out-of-judgment-free card. If I make white people the exception to your commandment to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. This was a a prayer modeled after the imprecatory prayers in the Psalms by Shaniqua Walker Barnes in the recently released book, A Rhythm of Prayer, edited by Sarah Bessie. This prayer, if you will, made national headlines because of its targeting of white people, in air quotes. And the call on the part of the woman praying to have God help her hate white people. This was a rightly explosive headline and news item. And when it came out just a few weeks ago, I'm speaking these words at the end of April 2021, many people stopped for a moment and thought hard about it. Why would such a prayer be prayed? Why would someone be asking God for help in hating white people? Where does such a view come from? Why would anyone want to pray such a thing? On one hand, it could seem like this is just a kind of stray remark. Somebody had a a bad day, and so they have an expression uh, of ill will towards somebody who took advantage of them, and so they're voicing that in a frustrated moment. That's a possible read on this prayer by Shaniqua Walker-Barnes in Sarah Bessie's edited volume. Another option, however, another strong possibility, is that this prayer is actually not an aberration. This prayer instead is an expression of a mindset that comes from a secular and godless ideology, an ideology that I call in aggregate form, wokeness. Wokeness is the state of being alert or awake to racial injustice in our country, and it is secondly, not only being aware of racial injustice, but desiring to be part of the movement for social justice, to right the wrongs of our racist public order. Wokeness is driven in intellectual and academic terms by what is called critical race theory. Critical race theory begins picking up steam about 40 years ago in legal circles of all things. Critical race theory originally emerges as a way to argue for righting wrongs in society, not based on retribution, but really on a kind of distributive vision of justice based on the backgrounds of the people who are committing crimes. So instead of just judging a case on its own merits, critical race theorists several decades ago were arguing that the underprivileged status of minority Americans meant that their underprivileged status should be taken into account 
when they were being assessed and sentenced. Critical race theory, again, is a legal movement for many years, but then it jumps the tracks and has become effectively the dominant academic paradigm of our time. I call the movement that critical race theory seeks to drive wokeness. The two really work hand in glove, as does the movement called intersectionality. Intersectionality signifying that the interests of underprivileged peoples, minority groups across different classifications and categories, intersect such that they have a collective ability to assemble and work for social justice. Again, I use the umbrella term wokeness to, to describe all of this activity, and I do so not to be confusing or to malign anyone, but because many people will not cite Ibram X. Kendi or Richard Delgado or uh, Robin D'Angelo when they are talking about racial issues. And yet there is nonetheless an ideological system that has formed and continues to form in America and in the West in our time. What are seven commitments, though, of this system? How can we define it? How do we know we're seeing it? Where do we see it? I want to contend that you see the following ideas, not just on college campuses shouted through bullhorns in streets. You see these things on social media. You see hashtags that call for such movement. You see people uh, on television commercials advocating for these kind of ideas. You have major Fortune 100 corporations uh, taking significant actions to advance social justice. All of this advances under the banner, again, of what we can call and even I think should call wokeness. It's not that any time you're getting wokeness, you get an extensive two-hour-long seminar in critical race theory. No, oftentimes this movement advances in smaller, quicker-hit kind of ways. Here are seven major ideas of wokeness. First, the world is fundamentally divided into oppressors and oppressed people. This idea owes to Marx and Engels in their Communist Manifesto published just about 150 years ago. This is a fundamentally Marxist framing of the world. I don't mean that in a slanderous way. I mean it in intellectual history kind of way. Marx argued this case economically. Engels did most of the work, of course, but Marx put his name on it. Marx and Engels believed that fundamentally, if you had wealth, you had privilege, and you were an oppressor of those who did not have wealth and thus did not have privilege. And so the revolution that Marx sought to awaken was an economic, class-based revolution that pitted, basically, simplifying the rich against the poor. And there's, of course, a long line of other ideas that Marx proposed and other Marxists later took up, and there's different offshoots of Marxism. There's different things to say about communism, socialism, so on and so forth. Nonetheless, it is important for our purposes that we recognize that critical race theory, intersectionality, wokeness most generally, is built off of a Marxist foundation that sees as our central problem this oppressor-oppressed dynamic divides up the world into these categories. So our major problem, and again, this is Marx's 
single greatest move in terms of affecting history is to marshal activity against oppression. Marx created a massive problem by his body of thought. He, yes, of course, uh, since the fall of Adam and Eve, a real historical fall by a real historical Adam, people have attacked one another. People have wronged one another. People have shown partiality. And yes, in different cases, of course, rich people have oppressed poor people. But Marx's move, make sure you get this, was to make automatic the status of oppressor for those who have means, who control the means of production, and to make automatic the status of oppressed if you did not. That is not a biblical move, not at all. Accordingly, Marx mobilized millions and millions of people across the world and the followers of Marx as well against so-called economic oppression. If you want a revolution, convince people they are oppressed and then get them to fight oppression at every turn. That is the, that's not a part of Marxism. That is Marxism. That is the key idea. Second, a major form of oppression today, second key idea of wokeness out of seven, comes from whiteness. Now, whiteness should be understood in air quotes. This is me talking, Owen Strand. There is not such a thing as whiteness. You, you can't put your finger on it. You can't go outside and smell it in the air. Uh, you, you can't tell when you're hearing it talking just by a tone of voice. Whiteness is a construct. The Bible gives us no grounding for whiteness and blackness and other variations of color and sort of subspecies of humanity based on skin pigmentation or lack thereof. The Bible does give us a grounding with Greek terms in the New Testament like laos or ethne, for what is called ethnicity. We have other terms for nations, countries, peoples. So we do have biblical grounds for understanding that there are distinct groups of people in the world, but those groupings of people in biblical terms are not based upon skin color. They are based upon other factors. They are based upon region. They are based upon locality. They are based upon shared culture. And there is no one group of people that is more sinful or less sinful than any other in the Bible. There is absolutely none. Jewish people, as we know from different texts, including the book of Romans, Paul's writing on, on the Jews in Romans 9 through 11 in particular, those, those people do indeed have the historic blessing of having had the, the covenantal promises given to their ancestors. That is something that Paul is working through in the new covenantal context in which he finds himself. But there is no sense in which the Jews or anyone else is more sinful or less sinful based on their grouping. But wokeness tells us, working through critical race theory, that whiteness, especially in America but in the West more broadly, is the dominant form that oppresses people today. What this means by extension then is that if you have white skin or if you fail to challenge those who benefit from whiteness, you yourself are an oppressor. And this is all based in historically America's troubled racial past with in real terms, again, this is me talking, this is me assessing this, 
slavery, Jim Crow, segregation being based on a false conception of whiteness that is not biblically grounded and is not grounded furthermore, secondarily and less importantly, in real human experience. There, there is different skin pigmentation in the world, and yet there are not different species of humanity based on pigmentation or lack thereof. Third, whiteness created by lots of white people being a majority culture together, according to wokeness, is not a neutral system. It creates a culture of white supremacy. This is the public order in which we find ourselves today, according to intersectionality, critical race theory, and woke voices. We are not simply in a, a, a realm in which whiteness is minorly privileged. We are in a system that can be summed up in the very pregnant term, white supremacy. America, many voices tell us today, go to Barnes & Noble, pull books off the shelf in the race uh, uh, category in Barnes & Noble, and you will find one after another that identifies white supremacy as the problem we face, the dominant ailing of this body politic, whiteness. And this is applied, of course, in evangelical terms to the church. Evangelical churches have not challenged the existing social order, this racist order that predominates, and so evangelical churches are, are, are guilty of participating in and transmitting white supremacy. This means that by then, in extension, white people are basically, if you connect the dots, as I'm sure you are as you listen to me, white supremacists. White people are effectively white supremacists. This is not because most white people or many white people have joined the Klan and put a burning cross in someone's yard. What a despicable, evil thing to do. But that's not what makes you a white supremacist, according to woke thinking and activism. No, white supremacism is structural. It's the structural nature of the public order. And this is because America is privileged to benefit white people. It is set up as a great game and rigged for the good of white people. And so that means that we find ourselves in a white supremacist order. The ordinary person in America today, whether they have white skin or not, who fails to challenge this order, who fails to get woke, is absolutely part of this system and part of this problem and deserves to be indicted as such. All this is covered, by the way, I'll say more at the end of this podcast, in my book, Christianity and Wokeness. Christianity and Wokeness comes out in late July, three months just about from today at the end of April 2021. Christianity and Wokeness is an attempt to identify what wokeness is as a system, similar to what we're doing in this short podcast, and then to give a biblical and gospel-shaped answer to wokeness, showing ultimately that Christianity and wokeness are not uh, compatible systems or a little bit apart from one another, but are in fact different religions. And so we need to reject wokeness in summary form and embrace biblical Christianity, embrace gospel-shaped Christianity, embrace the cross of Christ, which alone unites Jew and Gentile, man and woman, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group on earth. So Christianity Wokeness comes out. If you want more on this from me in three months, two other books to get that are out, one by Jeff Johnson, What Every Christian Needs to Know About Social Justice, 
excellent book. Goes into the roots of social justice, especially an exploration of Marx's thought. Commend that to you. That's by Jeffrey Johnson or Jeff Johnson. What Every Christian Needs to Know About Social Justice. Order that today. I wrote the foreword to that. And then Vody Bauckham's book, Fault Lines, which is already a bestseller after coming out just a couple weeks ago. Could not commend Fault Lines more to you. Bauckham has done excellent work in that book. So thankful to see it. In God's Kindness and Providence, be a USA Today and Publishers Weekly bestseller. Praise God for that. Bauckham, by the way, uh, and I share a publisher with our books. It's by Salem Books. Uh, His book is and my book is. Very thankful for Salem. Fourth, the evils of this culture show up in disparities between groups, and those disparities reveal inequities, and those inequities reveal injustices. So when you're looking at different literacy rates or nutrition rates or uh, life expectancy uh, statistics, you are seeing evidence when you see one racial group doing better than others of inequities and ultimately injustices. Now, if we're assessing data carefully, I'm not a statistician, so let that be said, we need to be very clear that there can be disparities between different groups and those disparities could reveal inequities and ultimately injustices. That is definitely a possible conclusion for those of us who are fair-minded. And yet we need to be very clear on the other side as well and say, just because there are disparities between groups does not mean that those disparities reduce neatly to a monocausal explanation, that explanation in our time being quite simply racism. Different communities can struggle for different reasons. There is a whole host of factors as to why some groups might have uh, 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 certain statistical rank in one category and even in numerous categories over others. We always want to have an eye to the possibility of injustice. We don't dismiss that. If you're a conservative, theological conservative, political conservative, social conservative, intellectual conservative, as I am in all all of those preceding categories, you should never be closed to data and assume that you know why data is going to be uh, uh, coming out the way it is. But you want to read thinkers like Thomas Sowell and his book, Discrimination and Disparities, carefully. Sowell is not a Christian, and yet Sowell has done good work in the data to show that you want to be very, very careful, as I said just a minute ago, about overreading data and making easy, monocausal conclusions based on stats. You need more substantiation uh, in many cases uh, than is often produced in our time in our public discussions to conclude, for example, that whiteness is creating a culture of white supremacy that is keeping whole groups down. It is true that in past days, the, the false construct of whiteness was used when it was enacted and fleshed into law in the form of, let's say, slavery to keep different groups down. There you have very clear policies and laws and cultural settings that are going to make it much harder for one group, really numerous groups uh, that would share a common skin color, to advance and succeed and thrive. So, so if we have a similar claim being made today, two centuries later, we're, we're not close to that, but we're going to need to see clear substantiation 
as to why the data is telling us what it is. We're going to need to see proof in policies, laws, cultural settings that show us why racism is keeping people down. We can see that clearly when we look back 200 years ago as just one example. But it is much, much harder to prove the claim of systemic racism or systemic injustice today. I'm not going to say it's out of bounds, but you have to prove it. And if you're going to prove something like systemic injustice, you have to recognize that you are putting a lot on the table to prove. You have to be able to show in a comprehensive fashion that the whole public order is shot through with racism. Please hear me. Many people do make that claim, including many people in evangelical circles. Many preachers make that claim. It's easy to make that claim, actually. But it's much, much harder to substantiate that claim. And that's exactly what needs to be done through a fair reading of data. But in many cases today, people are not reading data fairly. They are reading it too easily. They are concluding that there is one explanation that explains a whole number of social and cultural disparities, racial disparities at the core. And we need to be very careful, at the least, about such conclusions. Fifth, fifth tenet of wokeness. White supremacy should be vigorously opposed through social justice, anti-racism, and the targeting of white privilege everywhere we can find it. If our chief enemy is white supremacy, then our chief solution is social justice driven by anti-racism. And this means that we need to exchange a retributive understanding of justice where justice is understood uh, in, in terms of wrongs being righted through retribution, not through distribution. <clears throat> that vision of justice must be replaced with distributive justice, leftist justice in truth, such that we can grant everyone the same living conditions. The concept of social justice is advanced by many people in many different camps today, but it boils down to the basic idea that if we can dismantle the system of privilege that is found everywhere and yet very hard to spot in terms of policy, law, and cultural settings today, then we will be able to lift everybody up to the same place in society. We will not have inequities anymore. Remember that inequities reveal injustices. So if we can, if we can just rework the justice system and not have it be fundamentally about recompensing wrongs with the appropriate administration of response, legal force, punitive reaction, if we instead can make society about getting everybody to the same playing field, then, then we will have social justice. Christians, many Christians, along with many conservatives, would respond to social justice ideology by saying, no, we should not hinder anyone from participating in the society like Jim Crow law did, for example. That's evil. But we cannot grant everybody equality of outcome. So yes, let's work for equality of opportunity. Let's not place any unfair hindrances on one group over another. 
but let's also recognize that we're going to be unable to give everybody equality of outcome. It's simply not possible. It's not possible to get everybody to earn the same wage. Why? Because it's not possible to get everybody to work as hard as, as the hardest working person. There's always going to be condition, conditions that, that inhibit us, certain numbers of us, from hitting our peak performance for all sorts of reasons. Look, let me illustrate this. My friend Jeff Johnson uh, helped, helped flesh this out in his thinking. When it comes to playing professional basketball, I was not discriminated against. I desperately wanted to play uh, professional basketball when I was a boy, when I was growing up. And I had, thankfully, equality of opportunity. Nobody, nobody out there had put an embargo on the professional basketball career of Owen Strand hailing from coastal Maine. There was no word put out among professional basketball scouts and coaches and administrators saying, hey, keep an eye out for this dude. He loves to shoot the three, uh, but we don't want him to, to make it to pro basketball. No, I had a quality of opportunity. So I worked hard on my game. Uh, I went to basketball camp. I tried to hustle. I listened to my coaches. I generally did what I was supposed to do. I became a decent basketball player. I was a starter in high school. I got lightly re- recruited to a few very small main colleges. Um, and so, you know, that was a good outcome for me. I had opportunities. I didn't have all the opportunities that everybody else had. I didn't, I didn't play on a, a, an amazing AAU team or something like this. I didn't live in, an, in a region where there was uh, as advanced a, a basketball culture as there are in some places in America. There's no way to guarantee those kind of conditions. No one held that back from me. No one held me down. No one kept me from that. But I didn't have access to what some people did. Nonetheless, I had a quality of opportunity, by which I mean no one was barring me from accomplishment in basketball terms. But I was in no way guaranteed equality of outcome in playing basketball, was I? Nor do I deserve to have the equality of outcome. The equality of outcome I desired, as I expressed just a minute ago, was to play professional basketball. Well, if I had the same equality level as LeBron James and Michael Jordan and Rajon Rondo and Rafer Alston and a host of other basketball players I could name, but I'll spare you, I would have played in the NBA. I was not discriminated against. I was not wronged. I was not able, for a variety of reasons, to make it to the NBA. So I did not enjoy a quality of outcome I did enjoy equality of opportunity. People recognize equality of, out, equality of outcome as ridiculous when it comes to sports. Everybody doesn't deserve to play professional sports who likes them. And yet when it comes to public life, when it comes to society, when it comes to economics, when it comes to our living conditions, we have the arguments trotted out that supposedly support equality of outcome. Look, we would love for everybody to have the same living standard, but that's just not going to, to happen. And there is no way for our government, for our public order to make that obtain 
for every citizen. It sounds good. I understand. There's a pull to that. There's an appeal to it. It does sound wonderful to lift everybody up to the same level. And I think, by the way, Christians and conservatives by extension need to acknowledge that there is a force and a power to this argument that, that pulls at many people, and we understand that. But ultimately, in a fallen world that Jesus has not made right, such a vision is utopian and impossible to pull off. So what we can do as believers is work to give people equality of opportunity while recognizing we're never in any category going to have equality of outcome. And so we should not at all support policies, measures, candidates, parties, groups that argue for that very mistaken idea. Sixth idea, we need to wrap up here. Any form of privilege and oppression that stems from heteronormative, white, capitalist, patriarchalist structures must be opposed. This is really a nod to intersectionality because intersectionality says we don't just have inequity in terms of the races, white and black primarily, and people of color more broadly. We have all sorts of oppression going on. Slim people, the argument goes, according to intersectional scholars, oppress fat people. Able-bodied people oppress disabled people. Those who have authority in a leadership position oppress those who do not have authority. Uh, Those who are so-called heterosexuals, those who are straight, oppress so-called sexual minorities. This language has even infiltrated evangelical circles. What I want you to understand is that the sixth idea reads any difference in social normality, the embrace of this particular pattern as unjust and unfair. But we need to seriously question this idea as well. The fact that there are at least a good number of people who are in the mm, target weight zone they're supposed to be in according to their doctor does not mean that those who are outside of the target weight zone and who are in an unhealthy ranking are being oppressed. L- let, me, let me use language I used a, a few minutes ago. It's possible <laughs> that slim people are oppressing fat people, people who are overweight, but you are going to have to work hard to show me that such a stance is part of the system, is part of our systemic order. I think what is actually happening with these ideologies, with wokeness most broadly as the kind of parent or umbrella movement, is that we're, we're being trained now to read authority and majority culture and normal human experience as instituted by God in his common grace as a hostile reality. These things are hostile realities. Anything can be perverted and used for for evil in this world. That's true. But we also have to work hard as Christians not to lose sight of common grace. Yes, a, a person who is thin could be cruel to a person who is overweight. Yes, we know that that can happen. But to argue that that is 
necessarily the fabric of society because there is a normative expectation based on medical evidence that it is generally good for you to be thinner rather than more overweight does not an injustice reveal. We always have to be careful about our heart in terms of skin color, in terms of background, in terms of economic group, in terms of ability level, in terms of able-bodiedness. We always want to be a fruit of the Spirit-bearing Christian in a Galatians 5, 22 to 23 sense. We want to know further, as James 2 makes clear, that our hearts tend to partiality. It's easy to be partial, which means it's easy to treat somebody better than somebody else and thus show them inequity, unkindness, commit injustice against them. But we want to be really hesitant about the claim that there is some kind of codified reality that is oppressing people in structural form with regard to these categories. Much more we can say on that count. Suffice it to say that wokeness really poisons and weaponizes majority culture. It trains us to see things that are the way they are because of God's common grace. There are, in a lot of countries, for example, around the world, majority cultures. Those majority cultures are by no means good or neutral in all respects, but neither are they evil and and wicked in all respects. And we need to be careful along those lines. Seventh, last tenet of wokeness. We can create a just, fair, diverse, diverse and inclusive society by targeting inequities so that inequitable authority is deprivileged and minority groups are empowered. That is what is really driving our society today when we are seeing woke ideology expressed and promoted. The existing public order is not generally neutral with some positive elements in it and some negative elements in it. Our society is infested with racism and it needs to be torn down and deconstructed and then reconstructed according to a woke vision. And the way that will happen is by targeting authority and targeting privilege. There is so much to say about these ideas. I evaluate all of them in my book, Christianity and Wokeness, coming out in just three months. I encourage you, by the way, if you can, to pre-order it. Pre-order sales might seem a small thing to the reader, but they really help drive word of a book and with the way Amazon and other websites work, it it really helps create a buzz and push for a book. So please pre-order if you can. All of these ideas deserve further unpacking and engagement. I give them a good deal in the book, but they deserve an even fuller treatment. These These are serious claims that are being made, and we show intellectual respect by not dismissing them out of hand. You haven't heard me do that on this short little podcast. You've heard me in abbreviated form, try to tackle these ideas and wrestle with them a bit and, and even affirm where it's possible that they could be they could be expressing something true. You've heard that. But what we need most of all in these discussions 
is to know what the Scripture teaches about unity and justice and fairness. And in order to give, in summary form, the biblical answer on these matters, you cannot go anywhere other than the cross of Christ. And you need to go to a passage like Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. You need to recognize that there is long-standing tension between Jew and Gentile in Ephesus and throughout the Greco-Roman world. And the Apostle Paul does not offer up reparations as the means by which peace will come between these people groups. The Apostle Paul does not turn attention among the Ephesian church to political rulers and encourage the church to contact their local senator or public official in order to advance legislation that is going to make society fair and equitable. The Apostle Paul instead turns the attention of the church, the Ephesian church that has real tensions in it, to the cross of Christ. And in Ephesians 2.15, we learn that God the Father has killed or crucified the hostility that exists between these peoples covenantally. By taking care of the covenantal hostility between Jew and Gentile, the hatred that exists between these two groups, God is signaling to us the preeminent means by which partiality dies and justice advances and unity is found. It is not going to be ultimately in any political solution. There are ways that Christians can work for justice in different societies and be salt and light in a Matthew 5 sense. But the ultimate solution that God gives us to what divides us is the cross of Christ that unites us. That is God's solution in his Son, the Father's plan for the formation of the church, the washing of sinners through the blood of Christ, such that Jew and Gentile Christians don't create separate churches and then focus in their own lane on making their community a better place, but instead become one new man, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, one new man, truly a new humanity. In the blood of Jesus Christ, there is effectively a new human race that is formed in the image of the true human, Jesus the Christ. Does this truth mean that we then shut our eyes to what goes on in a given society that is evil? No, it does not. You have heard me, if you've listened to this podcast for even a little while, decry the evil of abortion, for example. We don't shut our eyes to these horrors. We don't leave them for someone else to engage. I believe we should pray about such things, do what we can in the public square to oppose them. By the way, that's not, that's not taking up an analytical tool outside of Scripture or a solution that is extra-biblical and applying it that the gospel isn't sufficient for. Opposing abortion is simply the gospel empowering you to be salt and light and you then opposing an evil in society. The same is true with the issue of racism and ethnocentrism. Partiality based on skin color or background has not mysteriously vanished in our time. People have been partial toward one another for these reasons. People are being partial to one another for these reasons. 
to varying degrees, people will be. We know this. We know where partiality is grounded. It is grounded in the fallen human heart. So if, if a policy was to take root in American public life, that unfairly targeted one group over another, Christians would be part of opposing that. We should be. But that is not embracing intellectually an analytical tool that is not found in Scripture. That is simply being a biblical Christian. And even if we did engage society in that way, our ultimate concern is not our given public order. It matters to us. You're hearing me say that clearly. Some would not affirm that in the evangelical world. I do affirm that intentionally. If there is racism and ethnocentrism in my society, in my community, in my country, I want to fight it. Thankfully, slavery and Jim Crow have been ended. Praise God. And so America has made major racial progress at the institutional level, at the very least. But the real center of my efforts, my energy, my attention, and I believe every Christian's involvement is the local church. That is where God is building one new human race that is united by the one solution for the one problem before us. Our sin meets its end through the cross of Jesus Christ. In the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, the sins of everyone who is repentant and trusting in the name of Christ for salvation are washed away. And that is our foremost concern as believers. The people, the household, Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, that the Father is building through his Son by the power of the Spirit. Embracing such a truth does not force a choice between loving the local church or having some concern for society. I believe we have both. But I also believe that every Christian is called to base our hope in God and God's foundational and fundamental work in this fallen world is not to make everything great in societal terms. Things will rise and fall. Christians will be a part of that. But God's foundational work is to save a people for himself in keeping the terms of the ancient covenant made with Abraham, terms that were first expressed in the old covenant administration and are now expressed in the new covenant administration that has come through the person and work of Jesus Christ. God is building a new human race. And and repentant sinners of every background, every skin color, every tribe, tongue, nation, people group on earth are a part of that new human race. Friends, we could say so much more. (laughs) These subjects deserve much more treatment. I pray my book and other books can be a resource toward that end. But what I want to leave you with is not concern over American social life, concerning as it often is, genuinely so. What I want to leave you with is hope, the hope of the gospel, the hope of what God is doing in Jesus Christ. He, he is taking people who have nothing in common 
and like Jew and Gentile who have been at war with one another perhaps in terms of background, lineage, family inheritance. And he is bringing those people together in local churches where they are a display of the uniting power of the gospel. Remember that the gospel is the power of God, Romans 1, unto salvation. It's the power that takes dead, hell-bound sinners like you and me, makes us alive through regeneration and then conversion that follows, and then unites us as members of the universal church but also of the local church. Friends, this is a great time in conclusion to join a local church. And this is a great time for you to find a strong Bible-preaching local church. If you're in a church that is not preaching sound doctrine on these matters or other matters, I don't encourage you to leave in a storm. I encourage you to try graciously to encourage your elders, your leaders in the church to cling to sound doctrine. But if your local church stubbornly refuses to do so, then it is time for you to leave, and it is time for you to find a sound congregation that is going to feed your soul the Word of God on a week-by-week basis and is going to call you to serve and find great fulfillment in serving your church in whatever form. The recent events of the global lockdown mean that still to this day a good number of professing evangelical churches have not reopened. If you are in such a situation or if you are in a congregation that is drifting tragically from the truth, it is time for you to pray, think hard, take counsel, have gracious conversations as you can, and then if, if you are not in a sound place, if you're not in a sound body, it is time for you to find one for the good of your soul. Listen, friends, life is short. We all have less time than we think we do. Even if we have decades and decades to live, it goes in a blink. The most important reality we have is our everlasting soul. And many of you out there have a spouse and have children to care for. Hear this challenge. If you are, for example, the head of your home, husband and father, it it is time for you to consider these things. And it is the time for you to put your family in a congregation, even if you have to drive a good bit to it, where they will feed on the Word of God, where they will be confronted with the reality of their sin, where they will drink deeply from the gospel of grace. We are in a context when professing Christians pray imprecatory prayers against people of different skin color than them. Satan is seeking to divide the church. Satan is seeking to drive people further away from one another who are not even Christians or already alienated from one another in our sin, even as we have anthropological unity in being image bearers, though fallen image bearers, and yet Satan wants to divide anyone he can. Satan wants to send us all to hell. He'll do that if he can. Praise God. God is much stronger than Satan. Jesus has overcome the world. So it is time for us to recognize that wokeness is not a trifling ideology. As a system, it is a religion, and it is a religion 
that is not Christianity. It's not just not the gospel, in fact. It is an anti-gospel ideology. People around us want to hate one another. Let's reject that hate. Let's cling to unity in Christ. Let's rejoice that many of us are members of local churches that are uniting people who have nothing in common in terms of their background and other factors. And let's not pray imprecatory prayers against one another. Let's not fight with one another. Let's instead pray that God will only more and more and more save desperate, wicked, undeserving sinners like us, give us everlasting life, and unite us as the one new humanity in Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man.